Welcome to the Dry Eye Coach podcast series, Click on Dry Eye, your insider pass to the most exclusive dry eye topic. The series will raise awareness about the current and future state of ocular surface disease. The podcast will focus on a variety of topics. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with our friends and colleagues, Selena McGee, who practices at Bespoke Vision in Edmonds, Oklahoma, about alphabet soup on dry eye. Welcome, Selena. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Walt. Thank you for having me. So tell us more about your practice. What kind of modality are you in and where are what kind of um, practice you are you're running? Sure. So I have been in private practice now for nine years, which is kind of hard to say out loud, but it is we do a little bit of everything. So primary eye care is our bread and butter, but I have a dry eye specialty center. And then we also do specialty contact lenses. I do aesthetics. Um, the latest pillar is presbyopia. And then we have a high-end optical as well. So to me, it is, and I'm in Oklahoma. So for me, this is practicing optometry at the broadest scope and loving every day of it. Are you in practice by yourself or do you have several associates with you? So I have two associates with me. Did you get the one I tried to take from you? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have exactly who I want. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just messing with you. Those are fighting so, words, Walt. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, you know, we've had lots of discussions over the years and you know about ocular surface disease and aesthetics. So how and why did you get started in both? So for ocular surface, I spent my externship as a fourth year in a LASIK practice. And so at a very young age, I was exposed to patients that really experienced bad dryness and were really frustrated with it. And back then, because I graduated in 2002, we had punctal plugs, steroid drops, and preservative-free tears. That was it. That was all we had. And so that just made a, a big impression on me young. And I, I just always gravitated towards that because I really wanted to be able to help more patients. And as this space, we've learned more and we have more things to help these patients. It's just fed that, that initial um, hunger that I had for helping patients with ocular surface disease. And the aesthetics piece, actually, like when you start to pull the, the thread of dry eye, Aesthetics comes with it because so much of what we do in aesthetics can either affect it in a good way or it can affect it detrimentally. And so it, it just seamlessly kind of came to be. And I found that my patients that suffered with dry eye happened to be in the same demographic that were wanting things that would help them with how they looked as well as how they felt. And so it just, it was a perfect fit. The reason why I asked about the associates and how many you had is how do you get them motivated to, to get involved with it? Because you have the passion for it, but you all have so many specialties. So that, that's where I was getting at with that question. So, you know, I think it's really important that whoever you work with, that they also have a hunger for something that you're maybe not as passionate about, because that's when you really start to to grow things, right? Because we can't be the best at all things as much as we would like to be. And so, you know, I wanted people around me that are better than I am at what they do. And I can bring that passion of dry eye and they learn that along beside me and whatever they bring to the table, then I learn with them. And so then we just, you know, we all grow together. 
Um, and so I think it's just, it's more important to have the mindset correct versus what you actually know and what you're passionate about. And so I, both of my associates are, are like that. They, they have a very similar mindset to what I have of, you know, learning new things and always taking it to the next level. And that's much more important than, you know, a, a very specific skill set. I would say. So where does your dry specialty service fit into this practice? Like how many days a week are you doing it? How, what part of your day is broken down into doing that? Sure. So procedures wise, when I do that, that is pretty much specifically on Wednesdays, but we treat dry eye all day, every day. So every patient that walks across the threshold of our clinic is screened for dry eye. And I think that's the most important piece that people need to hear if they're exploring dry eye and how they want to grow their practice. Because, you know, if you walk into your clinic with the mindset that this patient has dry eye until they prove that they don't, that's when things really start to grow. So I treat dry eye all day, every day procedures. I typically do on Wednesdays, but if a patient needs a specific appointment at the end of the day or the end of the morning, we're going to tuck those into our general clinic. If you're just starting this, I think it is really smart to do it on a half a day when everybody's like got the, the right mindset until you get your flow and you get your muscle memory you can start to, to that and roll that out to more days. And uh, can you share with us what the different procedures are that you're doing um, on your special Wednesdays? Yeah, yes. let's do your alphabet soup is what we're asking. Love it. Yes. Okay, so my biography on everyone, questionnaires on everyone. That's the, that's the everyday bread and butter, but procedure wise, I'm doing IPL. We're doing tear care. Um, you know, we might do an amniotic membrane. Um, you know, those are the procedures that we're typically doing on those days. And then I have my aesthetics tucked into that because a lot of patients that are doing IPL also want radiofrequency or they want neurotoxin. And so those are all typically on the same day. How do you figure out which procedure to recommend over another? So look at the disease state. So for IPL, that, that particular technology treats what I say are reds and browns. So you're going after a, a specific chromophore. Chromophores are water, blood, pigment, and even exogenous pigment, like tattoo pigment. So you have to really think about what you're trying to achieve with each technology and each modality and what it's capable of doing. So for IPL, if patients have telangiectetic vessels on their lids, which is ocular rosacea, then that's what we talk about with them. If they have mybobian gland dysfunction, which often happens hand in hand with ocular rosacea or even with just dry eye disease, because it's multifactorial, right? That's when we bring in tear care. So a lot of patients are having multiple things because we're treating them. In my opinion, we're treating the whole disease state, not just pieces of it. Um, and then radiofrequency comes into effect when we're treating more around aesthetics. There are, there is one clinical case report. It's a white paper on a physician that, that did um, RF and one eye and treated lids, which I don't actually do. I treat just aesthetics because I have tear care. Um, but he did one eye with lipoflow and one eye with radiofrequency, treating the lids with corneal um, shields in place that were plastic. 
And he had really good results with that equal to LipaFlow. So, you know, there's, there's ways that you can utilize what technology you have as well. But for me, we are treating with IPL typically followed by some kind of thermal pulsation. We use tear care. So there's lots of thermal pulsations out on the market. So ultimately you just have to take a step back and go, okay, what am I really wanting to treat with this patient? And now what do I have technology-wise to help them in the best way? Uh, Selena, do you have any um, experience with low-level light therapy? So low-level light therapy, I don't have any personal experience with. Um, I've read the, the white papers and looked at the technology, but because I already had IPL, I did not invest in it. So I don't have any personal experience with it. Still too new for me to have an opinion. Tracy? Um, I'd actually have to echo Selena exactly because I have um, the technologies that are working to treat the conditions that I'm seeing, but um, I'm still kind of waiting for more of the research to come out. The main paper that everyone's quoting right now is mixing IP, IPL, intense pulse light, with low-level light therapy, and I really want to see those two things separated and see what each can do, you know, strongly on its own. On its own, yeah. I have an N of 15 with that low-level light therapy and mostly for MGD. And, you know, so it works, but I only have an N of 15, but just like you mentioned earlier, Selena, having several different options already, it's like, where's this going to fit in and how's this going to add value to, to the practice? And so um, next question for you, Selena, with so many procedures available, what is the role of the pharmaceuticals? Because there's so many different drugs that are available to us. And is everyone that's getting a procedure getting a, a drop or how's that working? So I still rely heavily on pharmaceuticals and then we just continue to add things as we need them. Now, does that mean that a patient gets a therapeutic as well as IPL at the same time? Maybe if they have really bad ocular rosacea. So I still utilize pharmaceuticals and rely on all different kinds of things between cyclosporin, lofitograst, and I've always relied heavily on neurostimulation so now that we have a chemical version of neurostimulation, that's my newest um, addition to what we're doing because it targets the whole entire lacrimal functional unit. I have found that neurostimulation works great to maintain what we have initially done with investment of either IPL or tear care or all of those things. This neurostimulation just really adds another level to it to protect that investment maybe is a good way to say it. So I still use a lot of pharmaceuticals. They don't disappear when we do procedures. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree with you with the uh, tier via because you're, you're increasing a whole tier. And exactly. Patients are definitely gonna, gonna benefit from that. And so right now, I mean, I've been trying it in all patients, you know, drug naive patients, patients yep. with chronic therapy or procedures. So that's a, that's a great point uh, uh, on, on that as well. Well, and it, I think it helps with compliance too, because you don't have another drop, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a different modality. And like you said, it's, it's all three tier layers. I mean, the goblet cells degranulate, the meibomian glands evacuate, and you get this nice flush of aqueous. And there's just nothing else that we do that, that does all of that in one fell swoop. So uh, Tracy asked you earlier about the days you do procedures and you mentioned you do it on Wednesdays. We know many times patients, if they've been suffering, they want it now. Do you ever do treatments that day? Because just like anything, if you delay it, they may not end up doing it. So how do you, how does that fit into your schedule? 
Absolutely. So I have taken my practice to the level where people refer to me now. And so I have MDs, DOs, ODs that will refer dry eye patients. So when they come in for a dry eye consult, we have it slotted in the schedule so that if we're going to need to do a procedure, we've got time to do that. Tracy, what about you? A little bit different. Um, sometimes I find that if an eyelid is too angry or if there's you know, too much concurrent bluff, we've got to kind of clean that surface and kind of calm it down to be more receptive to the therapies. So what I'll do is I'll give the patient um, a calm down therapy. So something they can start immediately for the next two weeks. And I tell them, this is part of it. This is part of the therapy. I want you to do this so that you have better results at the end of your therapy. So you, cause you really obviously you can't go in and like squeeze out an angry eyelid. It will not express my bone the same way. So, which I'm sure doctor, I mean, Selena, you do the same thing too. If somebody is not a candidate that day, they're not a candidate that day, but right. we, I send them home with what I call a calm down kit, which generally is, um, omega threes, uh, lid scrubs. And then if they need it, if it's really angry, we need to get topical steroid involved. I'll do that for a couple of weeks before I do any sort of procedure on the, on the lids, but. Yeah, I'm a, I am a huge fan of cleaning up the lids first to Tracy's point. So a lot of times I will do zest and I'll clean up their lids like in office because what we can do typically in office to clean all that up is more than patients can sometimes do at home. And so that is always like the first thing that we do. And then we do the IPL series. I don't ever do thermal pulsation until we've done a whole series of IPL, which is typically four treatments. It's sometimes five. So since this topic is alphabet soup, I guess the word teledictasia fits in because it has the most letters of any word we use in eye care. Um, you know, we, I was having the discussion that this is at the academy, it was in regards to heat. So if the patient has mm -hmm. teledictasia, do you, either of you put heat compress because one of our colleague says, no, that's the worst thing you can do. And I said, well, you are wrong. I want to go on the record that you're wrong, but what are your thoughts on that? That's a, it's a good question. And I understand where they're coming from, but clinically what I have seen with my patient base is if we clean up the lids, we have to have heat to be able to get those glands back under control. At least now, you know, maybe Maybe it's different with Tiravaya. Maybe it's different with NeuroStem. I think there's more that we need to learn there, but that's one of the reasons that I don't squeeze on glands after IPL, because by the time that you take the patient from laying down to the slit lamp, they've cooled way off. And so you're squeezing on cold glands. So I still, I still use heat. Um, I think there's more information. You know, those, those meibomian glands are have all those beautiful petaloid, you know, little tiny, very delicate structures in there. I do not want to do anything invasively that's going to disrupt that. And to me, heat makes, makes sense, but I do understand the argument. I just haven't seen that play out clinically. Tracy, what are your thoughts? I like controlled heat. So um, obviously heat that's done in the office, uh, that's a controlled type of heat, which is why high quality expression techniques, I think work better. So to, you know, diff, whatever, if it's Lipiflow, whether it's Ilux, um, I tend to hold, I tend to take patients off of hot compresses until we get the inflammation under control. Um, 
that's kind of my own personal philosophy, just because I don't want to put heat on inflammatory disease process until it's a little bit calmed down if it's super angry. So controlled heat at the right time, I think makes a difference. Well, I'll just say you're both right, because I, I do agree. I, but, uh, you know, for me, I still use the heat. We still need more data on that. Traditionally, I mean, just like you said, Selena, you know, we, you, we need this amount of heat to, 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 to soften those obstructions, to address the glands. And so uh, I'm, I'm on the same page, page as you. So if you had to pick only one, because I get asked this question constantly, if you had to pick only one advanced piece of equipment to bring into your practice because it is the end of the year and you're trying to make that big purchase. <laughs> One thing you would choose. My biography in a heartbeat. If you don't have my biography, anything that you try to add behind it is going to be that much harder. Mm -hmm. What's yours, yeah. Tracy? Um, so as a diagnostic, I absolutely 110% agree with my biography. Um, if I had to pick one thing because of the patient base that I have, um, I would probably pick intense pulse light because it does do a great job of, at knocking down the inflammatory response. There's papers out there that show that it kills Demodex um, and we get great aesthetic benefits from using it. I would choose IPL if I had to pick one out of anything and that's hard because no. I, I still, I, I still want to squeeze the glands out. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Um, if I had to pick one procedure, it would be IPL. And since you both said IPL, I'll just pick something else. I'll just say thermal pulsation because it encompasses many different thermal pulsations uh, out on the market. But I think the biggest thing is do something and yes. choose a technology, talk to your friends, see what's working within their practice. I mean, can you share how have these procedures impacted your practice? I mean, you're successful, you've been growing, I'm pretty sure, and your patients benefit. Yes, I mean, we have grown exponentially and this is a big piece of it, a huge piece of it. Um, this probably makes up close to 30% of my revenue and that part just continues to grow. And, you know, that's one thing that they can't buy down the street. Um, so we've become a destination for dry eye. That's awesome. So any final pearls for procedures in the dry eye space and in, for your practice? So keep it simple and change your mindset. Walk into every single room with your patient. This patient has dry eye until they prove that they don't. If you commit to that mindset and you keep it simple with a, a questionnaire, look at structure, look at function of meibomian glands and use vital dye, that's it that is your dry eye clinic and you are going to blow it out of the water. Thank you so much, Selena, for your time and expertise to help us understand the alphabet soup for dry eyes. Perfect, thanks Walt, thanks Tracy.